Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. In August 1586, Francis Drake sailed home to England after raiding the Spanish West Indies. Entering the Inns of Court in London, he was greeted with cheers. His ships carried precious commodities like pearls, which he would present as gifts to Elizabeth I. Around the same Inns of Court, gentlemen smoked so many pipes of American tobacco that travellers complained the English are constantly smoking. Yet the men believed it gave them an air of civility. And in 1607, some of the 104 Englishmen who embarked on the three-and-a-half-thousand-mile voyage to colonise Jamestown, Virginia, took with them goffering irons, tools to crimp fabric to make ruffs. Of all the things to pack for such an unpredictable journey, the goffering iron evidently counted as essential. What connects these ruffs, pipes and pearls is the story of England's colonial pursuits. While regular listeners will know that we recently explored the founding of Jamestown, today we're going on a slightly different adventure. The stories we're going to hear today examine how England's desire to colonise affected both those they met and those at home. Politics, literature and behaviour were all shaped by relations with colonies like Jamestown. Far from being something that the English only did to others colonisation and the related notions of civility led to changes in English culture too. To learn more, I am delighted to be joined by Dr Lauren Working, author of The Making of an Imperial Polity, Civility and America in the Jacobean Metropolis. Dr Working spent five years as a research associate working on the project Travel, Transculturality and Identity in England, 1550-1700 at the University of Oxford, and is now a lecturer in early modern studies at the University of York. Prepare for fascinating insights into how seemingly simple objects reveal a great deal about the reality of colonisation. Working, thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted that you have joined me to talk about this because I think your work is so fascinating. And we're going to get into all of the details of what you've worked on in just a second. But could you do us a favour and start with the big picture? Can you start perhaps by briefly outlining the kind of colonial missions that 
took place during the late Elizabethan, early Jacobean period. Who was involved? Where were they heading? What were they hoping to do? That sort of thing. Sure. There's quite a few colonial missions that are going on in the late Tudor and early Stuart period. More than you might think, not all of them are necessarily successful, but I think also the failures are still quite indicative of this kind of growing imperial mindedness that the English seem to be forming during this time. So the Tudor conquest of Ireland is obviously a really big one. So that kickstarted again under Henry VIII. There's lots of campaigns during Elizabeth's reign. And James I promotes the colonization of Ulster in 1607, which is precisely the same time as the Virginia Company is looking to settle Virginia. Lots of prominent poets and politicians are involved. So Edmund Spencer, the author of The Fairy Queen, spends time in Ireland. Walter Raleigh spends time in Ireland as well as the Americas and Francis Drake and numerous others. So then we've got Walter Raleigh going to the Amazon basin, to Guyana or modern-day Venezuela in the mid-1590s. Then we get the settlement of the Jamestown colony in 1607. There's Bermuda that comes in 1609, and that's seen by the English as quite providential because a shipwreck brings the English to Bermuda and none of the crew are injured. And it's seen in England as this miraculous moment. There's Newfoundland in 1610 that the English tried to colonize. Raleigh returns to Guyana in a really ill-fated voyage in 1617. And then we start to get the beginnings of plantation in New England with Plymouth in 1620. And right before James's death, so in 1624, the English tried to settle some kits and that's the beginning of colonization in the Caribbean. So that's just a few of the places, but as you can see, it's already a lot of campaigns and money and projects that are going into settlement in the Atlantic. That was an amazing overview. Thank you. And you mentioned there some big names that we know, like Walter Raleigh and Francis Drake are well known. Popular history tends to regard them as explorers, do you think that actually we should be talking about them as colonialists? The short answer is yes. So they would see themselves as explorers, I think, which is partly why we continue to just use that term. Or perhaps adventurers as well, which is a term that kind of contains all of the sense of marvels or excitement that maybe more modern connotations of the idea of adventuring has. But in the early modern period, that also is very much about the idea of venturing, about reward, about risk, even duty. The idea that you are hurtling yourself into the unknown for hopes of profit, but also in service to the monarch or to the state or to God. But they are colonialists. They're advocating plantations and colonial projects. Unlike merchant trades in other parts of the world, there is a concerted interest in settlement here. These colonial projects, in some cases, involve human trafficking, and they also involve laying claims to huge amounts of Indigenous homelands. I don't think I've ever heard anyone put slavery quite so quickly into the words human trafficking. That really landed with me. Let's talk about how historians have traditionally studied England's colonisation of the New World. What sources have people used? What perspectives have they taken? For a long time, I think there's been a big divide between the colonial and what's considered English. There has been a huge amount of really valuable studies about the Atlantic world that have emerged from the late 20th century, from the 1970s with David Quinn and Nicholas Canning, really painstakingly 
trying to recover the colonial projects that the English have, but also the lives of those who migrated, whether willingly or forced. And more recently, we see that in the work of Imtiat Sabib's Black Lives in the English Archives, or Cole Thrush's Indigenous London. But I think the tendency is still to see colonists and explorers as either going off and having their adventures in other parts of the world, or yes, admittedly committing atrocities abroad, but in a way that doesn't necessarily implicate England itself. So there's still this idea that dispossession or enslavement becomes an American problem, and it's not really an English problem, or it's not necessarily an imperial problem at this point. And there's also been a tendency, though I think this is also gradually shifting, which has really just focused on the lives of white European colonists. So even critical studies that talk about how bad (laughs) empire can be for people still never necessarily fully try to integrate or understand the lives of those peoples who were colonized or invaded. And I think this is particularly true of trying to recover the lives of indigenous peoples and their influence on the development of England in the early modern period. In terms of the sources you were asking about, I think this is why it's so important to bring in what have sometimes been called extra-colonial histories and sources. So not just reading against the grain of the archives that we do have necessarily, but also thinking about archaeology, anthropology, For me, a big one is the oral histories of Indigenous groups themselves. One example would be the story of Pocahontas, for example. Lots of people know who she is, or at least have an idea of her and how English colonists encountered her in early Virginia. But far fewer people have heard of the oral history account of her life that has been passed down over 400 years and which tells a very different story of who she was. I still think there is a little bit of that, perhaps not quite so much unwillingness, but just this grappling with how we actually incorporate these different sources together because they tell quite different stories. It's so interesting, isn't it, thinking about the question of sources. Immediately when you said people haven't told these stories, and I thought, okay, well, it's because they've looked towards documentary sources that survive in the archives. But as you're saying, we need to go beyond even the experience of reading those against the grain. How would you describe your approach then to studying England's colonial pursuits? What has led you to take a different avenue? Interest that I have in finding these threads of connection between developments in the colonies and developments in London or in England at the time. So it's always about what different kinds of materials and methods do I need to really understand not just cross-cultural encounters in the colonies, but their connection to changing social practices and literature and consumption in London at the time. So it was actually getting a fellowship to study Indigenous anthropology during my PhD, where I first realized, hold on, actually, the textual archive isn't going to be enough when looking at colonial history. And I'm much more interested now in thinking about material culture, whether it's a tobacco pipe that's found near the Thames or an indigenous made feather garment and how we can incorporate those into more traditional sources and discourses found within England in the 16th, 17th centuries. Now, this resistance to having colonial histories hived off as being American and disconnected from what is happening in the metropole, to use a 
jargony word, has <laughs> meant that a locus of your work has been the Inns of Court in London. Could you tell us a bit about the Inns and why you chose to study them in your work for your book, The Making of an Imperial Polity, in order to consider the effects of colonisation? They're quite exciting and fun places to study where fashionable young gentlemen, they're often still in their teens, come to experience life in London. They're living independently of their families for the first time. They want to experience city life. So the Inns of Court become these hubs of cultural and literary production. Shakespeare has some of his plays first performed there, things like that. But the four Inns of Court, there's Gray's Inn, Lincoln's Inn, Middle Temple, and Inner Temple. And they're still the professional institutions for barristers in England and Wales today. So if you know a lawyer and you can ask them which of the inns of court they belong to, they're a bit like Oxford and Cambridge colleges in the Elizabethan and Jacobean period. They have their own rules and regulations. They have libraries and dining halls and chapels. So they're important communities and spaces of education and sociability. But there are also places where these young gentlemen go and can test out their own politics and ideas about the world. So when I was researching the material for the book, I wondered why haven't scholars looked more at the Inns of Court alongside other institutions like the Crown and Parliament as places where colonial interests are really being pursued and are really flourishing so it seemed to me that these were quite under-researched spaces for thinking about the emergence of empire and global exchanges and this kind of late Elizabethan moment. Let's just pause on the ins and think a little bit about stuff, material culture, ruffs and pipes and pearls. Perhaps let's go with the latter first, because people might well know... Elizabeth I is always pictured in portraits dripping with pearls. Drake wears the famous pearl hanging from his ear. What could looking at pearls, for example, tell us about the effects of colonisation, both in England and in the colonies? Pearls are, of course, around in the classical world of the Mediterranean and the East. There's lots in Tudor poetry about the Orient Pearl or the Indian Pearl, which increasingly in the 16th century is more a reference to the East Indies. But, and this has been looked at really brilliantly by Molly Warsh in her book, American Baroque, about pearls and empire. Many of the pearls that are flooding the market in England and in Europe in the later 16th and early 17th centuries are from developing pearl fisheries in South America and the Caribbean. So for me, pearls can tell us a lot about the desire for commodities that are sourced in the Atlantic and lay behind imperial projects of the time. They also tell us about how both men and women valued pearls, but also did understand the conditions in which they were sourced. So Europeans are perfectly aware of the dangerous industries and the threat to human life that could lay behind the acquisition of pearls. I'm thinking, for example, of an image that is included in what's called the Drake Manuscript, which is this unpublished account of an anonymous individual's travels on Drake's circumnavigation of the globe. And there's an image in that of an enslaved African pearl diver who seems to be fleeing from a stingray or something. So what we think about how Every pearl that we see in all those portraits that you mentioned are sourced under quite perilous conditions for 
enslaved divers, I think it gives us a very different lens through which to view something like the Armada portrait of Elizabeth. In this portrait, the queen is completely covered in pearls. She's got rows of pearls around her neck. They're sewn onto her bodice. And she has her right hand resting on a globe and specifically on what looks to be Central and South America. So it's almost as if she's kind of imparting to the viewer. We beat the Spanish Armada. The Spanish ships are being wrecked in the background of the portrait. And there's a new power that's coming out of these territories. And the spoils are all around us, these pearls and things. So, yeah, there's something uncomfortable there, I think. And I'm haunted by the question that Pliny the Elder asks in his Natural History, which is a source that lots of Renaissance readers would have encountered, where he says, is it the rule that we get most satisfaction from luxuries that cost human life? That is a startling question, and I think also one, frankly is evergreen. It is a question that we probably need to ask ourselves at the moment, actually. Yep. Yep. And I don't know if it applies to the other category of item you mentioned, which is pipes. Would the people who aspired to own and wear pearls be the same people who smoke pipes at this time? I'm sure there's a pipe of Walter Raleigh's at his house preserved, and certainly he became a sort of object of smoking in this 19th and 20th century. So who smoked? What's the relationship between smoking and colonisation? Yeah, that's a huge question that I grappled with in my book, is to what extent we can relate smoking to the colonial projects specifically or an endorsement of them. The fact of it is, of course, tobacco is in the realm of England because of colonization. Tobacco wouldn't be there otherwise. It was smoked by indigenous peoples for millennia before Europeans got to it. Sailors brought it into the realm. Men, women and children smoked tobacco during this time. But I would say that gentlemen explorers such as Walter Raleigh, who make those kind of dangling pearl earrings fashionable in their portraits and who are starting to smoke tobacco as well, they do associate tobacco with an endorsement of the colonial project. And they are helping to make tobacco smoking socially acceptable for the elite. So it is a pastime that the elite are also adopting. And they try to differentiate themselves from the kind of savage practices of Native Americans or of kind of sailors or less wealthy people, largely by the accompaniments of smoking. So their tobacco boxes are made out of silver or gold or ivory. They have tobacco pouches that are made. They engrave their tobacco boxes with heraldic coats of arms, very much kind of gentry pastimes that are being stamped onto this very new practice. And I think one thing I would say to make a case that there is a support for empire that we can see emerging through smoking is that even though tobacco is grown in England in the early 17th century, there's lots of physicians and women who are managing their households who try to grow tobacco at home. James I is pressured by members of the Virginia Company in Parliament to ban domestic tobacco growing in 1619. So it actually becomes illegal to grow your own tobacco. And that is specifically to support the fledgling colonies in Virginia and Bermuda and elsewhere. While a lot of Elizabethan smokers would have relied on Spanish-grown tobacco, there's a lot of rhetoric by the 1620s about why are we giving money to Spain for our consumption practices? What we need to be doing is specifically feeding our money into our own English colonies that are growing tobacco. 
as well. So in that sense, I do think smoking almost becomes a kind of patriotic act, that it's the same gentlemen who are in Parliament pushing for these laws to support colonization, who are then going to dinner parties and smoking and writing poems about tobacco and that kind of thing. And I suppose ultimately, along with sugar and cotton, tobacco becomes one of those crops that enslaved people are growing for the colonists. Yes, and yet completely absent from the kind of glamorization or the imperial imagination of it in this early moment at the same time. Millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 to called the Forgotten War? The North Koreans and the South Koreans, even today in the 2020s, they're still officially at war. This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. From the halls of power... I've seen documents in the last week where the British chiefs of staff are telling Clement Attlee this might lead to World War III. This might be a nuclear war. To the battlefront. During the Korean War, the ship fired its guns far more than it ever did in the whole of the Second World War. Because that's what we were doing day in, day out. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit as we remember the war the world forgot. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God. We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. So we've got pearls and tobacco being brought to England. I was astonished to come across that fact that what was being taken to the colonies in your work is sort of everything but the kitchen sink. It's the rough and the goffering iron. Why are these things being taken three and a half thousand miles by boat to a new colony? Yeah, that's a great question. And I am so fascinated by this. So goffering irons, for those who might not know, they're the tools that are basically used to crimp the rough into shape. So they're quite big and bulky. They look like a hair straightener or something like that. And they were heated up and then inserted into pleats of 
linen and lace fabrics. And as you say, some of these have been found at Jamestown. So archaeologists have found five of these in the early Jamestown settlement. Now, does this mean that the elite men and women who arrived there definitely wore ruffs? Did they take them with them intending to wear them? And then, as anyone who's been to Virginia knows, the climate is so humid in the Chesapeake that already velvet doublets and everything else they brought with them is starting to seem a bit obsolete. But I think the fact that there are five is interesting. And also there are surviving letters and kind of other sources from the colony wanting their family members to send them starch, for example, from England to the colony. And that starch is used to stiffen a ruff into shape. And ruffs or falling bands and lace collars have been mentioned in really early inventories from the 1620s in Virginia as well. So it does seem that they were there. And it does seem to very much suggest that the visual markers of civility are really important in this moment of early colonization when the English don't have their stately homes and they don't have law courts and things to cement their authority in the region. And so one relatively straightforward way in which they can do so is very much through the things that they wear. And I think that is quite significant. Right. So it's about distinguishing themselves from Native American peoples, amongst other things. Although, is there a sense in which roughs are also kind of representing a forced civilization in inverted commas? I think of that 1616 engraving of Matawaka, more popularly known as Pocahontas, also Rebecca Rolfe, wearing a ruff. And I wonder if we know of any other Native peoples adopting the ruff or being perhaps made to. Yeah, I'm haunted by that. Since thinking a bit more about ruffs and goffering irons and their place in Jamestown, it has made me see that portrait that you're referring to, the 1616 portrait, a bit differently. When you think of civility basically being a shorthand word for assimilation and the attempts to bring civility to Indigenous peoples by transforming their lives and their cultures, making them English, is basically just these dreams of assimilation that would destroy or eradicate Indigenous cultures altogether. So when Matoaka is wearing this ruff in the portrait, there's no way that she can also show off Roanoke beads that she might be wearing as part of her own culture's signifiers of importance. And I think it's not coincidental that the English, when they're parading her around London to celebrate the success of the Virginia Company, this is the same time in which a lot of portraits of military men show them wearing full body armor. So portraits of Prince Henry, of Francis Drake, of Walter Raleigh, wearing full armor and the ruff. There is something there, I think, about the military might that comes with the English, but also that sense of the ruff as the signifier of civility. Now, I wonder also if we should think about this idea of Native Americans being assimilated, being made civil, as representing a traditional, in itself very colonial perspective on colonisation, which is something the English are doing to other people. But you've already said about the pearls and the tobacco that clearly things are not just one way. So from the experience of those who were back in England, late Elizabethans, Jacobeans, would they have had a sense that the encounter with the so-called New World was changing their society? I don't have much evidence of what Algonquins in Virginia thought about the rough in the 16th and 17th centuries, but I do think it's quite indicative that a lot of 
indigenous voice kind of writers and artists today do associate the rough with this very first moment of forced assimilation. And a lot of their writings and their artworks are very critical of what the rough represents for them, which is something quite haunting. When I first started researching this for my PhD, I was repeatedly told that I would never be able to prove that Virginia or any of the colonies had any effect on England whatsoever. And I know that probably sounds quite ludicrous now, just because huge advances have been made in thinking differently about this material. And I do think the more I work on this, the more there are so many ways in which plantation economies and exploration in the Atlantic is making a mark on England, even in this very early moment before a full-fledged kind of empire exists, or even before English claims to an empire seems very realistic. So as you say, the material culture, the tobacco is a really obvious way. There's a lot of critique at the time of people just not being able to turn a corner without puffs of tobacco getting blown in their face. Other goods and commodities as well that might not seem as intoxicating, but Things like sassafras, things like timber from cedar, from northeastern forests, the uses of certain dyes and pigments that are being sourced in Central and South America that appear in a lot of artworks of the time, parrot feathers that come up in banqueting set pieces. Then there's not just the movement of things, but the presence of indigenous peoples in London. Plenty live in the houses of merchants and courtiers in the Strand and right in the heart of London. Changing laws and policies in England in which it becomes legal to send poor English people to the colonies to labor as well. And then I guess the big thing is following the money and thinking about where in these early successful plantation schemes that are generating wealth for all these investors and patrons, where is that money going? Is that money going into all the rebuilding of Jacobean houses that we see all throughout, not just London, but England at the time in Scotland? Where is this money for commissioning artworks and buildings and funding playhouses coming from? Because so many Jacobean were involved in joint stock companies that could be quite lucrative. And this is, again, a little bit right on the cusp, but this is really starting to boom in the 1630s and 40s and 50s. But we do see traces of that happening already. Well, that's an encouragement to anybody who's thinking that they want to do a PhD or further study and they think, oh, I'm being told I can't do this. It's not possible. As you say, it now seems ludicrous that you were ever told that, but it needs people like you to change the focus and change the direction of travel for us to be able to see these things, to mix my metaphors horribly. Do you think there was any extent to which the early years of colonisation, whether it's looking at pearls or at pipes or whatever, made Jacobeans grapple with their self-image? Did it make them think about who they were, what their values were? Or do we just see a kind of blanket denial of thinking deeply about it? One thing I should say, first of all, is because I focus largely on the political elite, I think that my answer might be quite different to if we think about opening that up to other groups in Jacobean England at the time, in which resistance to colonial projects to force migration, I think, of course, will come across much more strongly. The Jacobean gentlemen do ask themselves lots of questions along the lines of how might contact with foreign places contaminate the body politic? Is what is necessary always good? How should the English be viewed on the global stage? Who is a citizen who belongs in our commonwealth? They are asking themselves these questions. 
but often it seems that the question is more what's the best way to do colonization rather than is colonization a good idea in the first place so are the gentlemen of the inns wrestling with the morality of colonization at all <laughs> or is that not really ever a feature it's just about efficiency something like Sir Edward Hobie's commonplace book is really indicative, I think. So this is a commonplace book that a gentleman has been collating during his years at the Middle Temple. He's affiliated with the late Elizabethan court, so he has these kind of political aspirations. And in his commonplace book, he includes information about indigenous Tupi peoples of South America, alongside adages about civility and moral behavior and about good conduct. So that commonplace book to me, looking through that, gave me a sense in which those who are aspiring to political careers, these young gentlemen coming through the inns of court, they are using information about the Americas and travel literature to think about their own sense of civility and governance and political participation. But the critique isn't as strong as you would like it to be because I don't want to let them off the hook, basically. It would be possible for them to have been much more critical as other people were, or even as a lot of debates in Parliament about trade with Asia seems in some ways more vehement and divided than the kind of endorsement of colonization among gentlemen. I will say that there is a rare critique in Joshua Sylvester's anti-tobacco poem that he writes in 1616, which has the really great title, Tobacco Battered and Pipes Shattered. And he's clearly pandering to James I's dislike of tobacco. It's mainly a poem about why tobacco is bad. But he writes in it, and this really struck me when I first read it, he says it should be questioned whether discovery of America, that newfound world, have yielded to our old more hurt than good, which initially makes it seem like it's the typical kind of thinking more about the good of the realm and not a concern for other people. But he does follow that by saying on both sides, both for Christians it had been better and for the Indians that only good men to their coast had come or that the evil had still stayed at home. There are moments where we get glimpses of a critique that's a little bit stronger. Samuel Daniel, the Jacobean poet, does this as well. Just a few refrains in poetry and outside of kind of political discourse, where there is a sense that this probably wasn't a good idea and shouldn't have been done. But also it already almost seems too late for that kind of critique. And it's such a contrast to the Spanish, say, in the 16th century, who, of course, are being castigated by the English in the black legend of the Spanish. And yet they've had big debates about the morality of how you treat native peoples. And it's striking by its absence that we don't see that on a major scale, at least as far as I know, in the early 17th century. No, you're absolutely right. And I think the English conveniently almost just refer to the Spanish and say they had all these debates about it. And ultimately, they're still in the Americas, building their empire, and why not try this ourselves? We'll just do it differently and we'll do it better. And that's why I think civility is so key to this whole story is because the English are constantly pitting this idea of civilizing other people as a benign method of conquest that is going to contrast to what the Spanish have done in Central and South America. And of course, it isn't benign at all. Civility is not just about refinement. It's always on the knife edge of violence as well. 
It's a narrative about empire that the English have clearly been peddling from the very beginning and still are. Are there other items, apart from the ones we've mentioned, ruffs and pipes and pearls, that we should think about when we want to think about the symbolism of the effects of colonisation on English society? Another really pervasive one that we might notice all the time in portraits without really knowing where they come from are the felt hats, the big broad brim hats that lots of Jacobeans and Cavaliers wear in their portraits. And these big wide brim black hats are usually made from beaver fur. And those beavers largely come from North America in this period. So I think there's lots of potential for thinking a bit more about the ecological devastation that's happening in the Americas and its immediate connection to the self-fashioning of gentlemen and women in the 17th century. But I think one of my big interests is feather work and just the presence of North American, Central South American, Caribbean birds in English performances. There's lots of operas and court masks. They appear in commonplace books and engravings and costume books and drawings. So feathers, feather garments, feather headdresses, they become like roughs, like such quick signifiers of something very specific, in this case, indigeneity. But what's interesting to me about looking at feather work is, of course, that it becomes possible to look at how the English become fascinated by these objects and we can study their own incorporation of feather work in their performances. But feathers are also a means of trying to understand indigenous craftsmanship and knowledge transmission and cultural systems in their own, that we can think about how different Indigenous societies have valued feathers and made these feather garments, and we can study those and try to understand them without immediately yoking them to colonial domination at the same time. The other thing that springs to mind that you mention in your work is globes. And I'm thinking here of Elizabeth again and the Armada portrait. We've got all the pearls, we've got the rough, and we've got the globe as well. Is that a signifier in itself? Yes, and I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the earliest pair of celestial and terrestrial globes that survive in England from the late 16th and early 17th century are the Molyneux globes that are actually at the Middle Temple. And we're not quite sure who exactly commissioned them or why, but they were a known presence at the inns from the early 17th century. And so again, I think it's quite interesting that the Middle Temple of all the inns of court, I found in my work, is particularly a place where Drake's circumnavigation came out of. And there's something about the microcosm of globes I think that are really important in this moment where the English are trying to grapple with their sense of who they are in the world and having this little globe that you can literally hold or show that you're possessing is quite indicative of just their broader aspirations towards kind of ownership and possession of different things and people and places in this moment. And I think there's a nice parallel, isn't there, about the circularity of ruffs in a portrait, which kind of frames the face of a monarch like Elizabeth. And then you from that ruff to following, tracing down her arm, and then there's a globe at the end of it. There's kind of a connection there. Finally, I know that you have just come to the end of this monumental five-year research project where you've been looking into cross-cultural encounters in this period of 1550 to 1700. And I also know that some followers of our recently set up Twitter account, cue the plug, 
at not just Tudors, have asked for information about ordinary Stuart women. And as I understand it, some of your work has thrown up material to do with gender. So what else have you kind of come across? What new areas of exploration, perhaps not quite the best word in the context, but what new areas have come out of that work for you? In some ways, I'm hoping my next book-length project will be almost a kind of companion volume of sorts to the first book, although I'd like it to be perhaps more encompassing than that, more relational. But I really want to think more about the social, political, literary lives of 17th century English women and find ways of connecting that to various colonial projects. How might objects or consumption or sociability link women in London to female craftsmanship or knowledge in plantation sites in places such as Bermuda or St. Kitts. And also thinking about the lives of women in Central and South America, because I think that often when we think of English colonialism, we do tend to focus on the Caribbean and on North America, on Virginia, on New England. But I've been thinking increasingly about the lives and experiences of women in the silver mines of Potosi in Bolivia, female cultivators of chocolate and tobacco, textile workers, and whether or not there's some kind of way of doing more to relate their lives on plantations and outside of plantations to the rise of female sociability and writing in England that we tend to associate with the 17th century as well. So Afro-Ben. Afro-Ben's writing, Margaret Cavendish's writing. And you mentioned earlier the way that pearls maybe prompt us to think a bit more about our own consumption habits today. And that's certainly something I thought a lot during lockdown, just reading a lot on commodity chains in the fashion industry today and thinking about the lives of garment workers and factories who make the clothes that we wear. And I do want to think much more about this kind of seemingly invisible hand of female laborers in other parts of the world and their connection to ideas of creativity and craft in England in the 17th century and continue that kind of comparative transatlantic perspective. Well, we shall await that with bated breath because as far as I'm concerned, this has really been a revelatory podcast. I think you have changed the way that I will see portraits of this period forever more. In general, I feel like you've kind of scraped off a level of mire that has obscured my view of colonisation and... I'm very grateful to you for that. So thank you so much for taking this time to talk about your work. And clearly, we were all going to want to rush out and get a copy of your book. So for those who haven't, it's called The Making of an Imperial Polity, Civility in America in the Jacobean Metropolis. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me today. And I look forward to many more conversations. Thank you for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It seems about time, frankly, that you got a chance to speak to us too. So we have belatedly launched a Twitter account, which is at Not Just Tudors. Please write to me on there and say what you would like to hear podcasts about. Or if Twitter is not your thing, we also have an email address, which is notjustthetudors at historyhit.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.